0: Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. We are nearing the end of Revelation. And this morning, for the very first time, we see something in this book that stretches beyond A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. Today we come to the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And we're going to just look at Revelation 20, one through 3 this morning, But I'll read the first 10 verses so that we have the fuller context here of what John has to tell us about this time period. So starting in Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus And they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, in these verses you hear references to a thousand years or the thousand years. The fancy term for these thousand years is the millennium. And the word just simply means a thousand years. Some believe it will literally be a thousand years, but most just understand this to be a very long period of time. This thousand years is the reign of Christ, Christ's kingdom. Because Satan is bound and Christ's kingdom is advancing and growing, it's known eventually as a time of peace. This place in Revelation is the only place in the whole Bible where the thousand years is referenced. Now, there are other places that talk about Christ's kingdom, but nowhere else is it specifically referenced as a thousand years. So it's a little bit surprising that the millennium has become the single most defining distinction among different views of eschatology or end times. The different major positions on end times kind of take their names from what they believe about the millennium. Somebody has said that it's a thousand years of peace that Christians like to fight about. Now, this morning, most of our time will be spent looking at the binding of Satan. What does it mean that Satan is bound? How does this fit into the picture of the story of Scripture? But before we do that, it would be good for us to try to get some clarity about the different views of end times. And we've done this before, I'm going to do it again, but I'm going to do it I'm going to try to be clear, but brief, okay, as we do this. There are three main positions about the millennium. And then, of those three, two of them have two kind of different major views inside them. So there's a total of five kind of major significant different views that I will try to explain the basics for. We looked briefly at these positions back in May, When we were in Revelation 11. So hopefully it sounds familiar, but I think it'll be helpful to go over them again. The three main positions are premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. Now you can see that each name has to do with the millennium, but each has a different prefix. And the prefix is indicating where the return of Christ fits in relation to the millennium. So Premillennial means Jesus returns before the millennium. Post-millennium, millennial means that Jesus returns after the millennium. And amillennial actually says that Jesus also returns after the millennium, just like postmillennialism does. But it makes the millennium spiritual rather than an earthly reality. So ah, that prefix, means not which is really not a fair name because they do believe there's a millennium. It's just spiritual in nature rather than physical. But really, all those who are amillennial are technically postmillennial because they all believe the return of Christ will be after the millennium as well, okay? Let me give you some diagrams that'll hopefully help to visualize this and this is very basic. There's a lot more detail that could be put in, but I just want you to get the basic idea. Here's what pre-millennialists have believed for most of church history. So at some point in the future, there will be a time of tribulation. And then Jesus will return, followed by the reign of Christ on earth. And that reign may or may not be literally a thousand years, but it'll be a long time. And after the reign of Christ on earth, then there will be a final judgment of everyone. Now, Another version of premillennialism is what is known not as historic premillennialism, but dispensational premillennialism. And this is the most well-known and popular view of end times in Christian culture today in America. But it's important to realize that this is a very recent view. Before the early 1800s, no one held, held this view. It hadn't been invented yet. And this is the view that's reflected in like the left behind books, or in the older Thief in the Night movies, that kind of thing. And this view says that at some point in the near future, there will be a secret rapture of the church. Jesus will return secretly without coming all the way to earth, and believers will rise to meet him in the air, And then they will go be with him in heaven for seven years, during which time there will be great tribulation on earth. And then at the end of the seven years is when Christ returns all the way to the earth to set up his kingdom on earth. And that kingdom will be Jewish in character. And he'll reign for a literal thousand years, after which is the final judgment. Okay, that's dispensational premillennialism. The view called post-millennialism says that Jesus will return after the millennium. The time of tribulation that the Bible talks about was the time of suffering in Jerusalem and Judea leading up to AD 70. And this view holds that the kingdom began in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. And once the judgment fell on Jerusalem in AD 70, At that point, the kingdom was fully established, though it was small, and then it grows through the current age as the gospel message spreads around the world and more and more people believe. Its growth is like a tiny mustard seed that grows into a great plant or yeast in a lump of dough, which over time leavens the whole lump. And at the end of this time period, Christ will return and carry out a final judgment. The view called amillennialism also holds that we are currently in the millennial period. But the thing that makes this view different is that the kingdom is only spiritual. Okay, so the kingdom is the rule of Christ in the hearts of his people. And there's no expectation that this will have an impact on the rest of the world. At the end of this time will be a time of tribulation followed by the return of Christ and the final judgment. And then there's another version of this view that holds that yes, the kingdom of Christ is happening now, but it's not in the hearts of his people, the church, it's the deceased saints ruling and reigning with Christ in heaven. So the millennium reign of Christ is completely otherworldly in that view. Now, the view that you've been hearing from me as we've gone through our series in Matthew 24 and through the book of Revelation is the one known as post-millennialism. The view that we are currently in the kingdom and it's growing. I would say that we're still towards the beginning of it. It's small, but it's growing. Okay? It has been growing throughout church history. It'll continue to do that until the nations are discipled. So as we continue through Revelation 20, now with that little kind of primer in view. Keep that in mind so you have context about what we're talking about this week and the next couple of weeks. All right, so let's talk then about Revelation 20 verses one through three, the binding of Satan. And what I want to do is I want to look at in these, in these three verses, the one thing that happens at the beginning of the thousand years, that is the binding of Satan. So first we see an angel coming down out of heaven with a key and a chain. And the key indicates access and control. And the chain is authority and power to restrain. So who would have that power? Well, remember back in chapter one, we saw that Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. He's the rightful authority over them. But then in chapter nine, we saw a star or an angel fall from heaven and he was given the key to the bottomless pit. So the fallen angel was Satan, and he had to be given the key because it doesn't actually belong to him. But it served God's purposes for Satan to open the pit and let out all of the locust demons who then invaded Jerusalem. That was part of the tribulation, okay? Well, now this angel in Revelation 20 is coming down from heaven. He's not falling from heaven. And he has the key because it belongs to him. This is Jesus. Jesus is the one with the authority and control and power over the pit. And we see that Satan's power to deceive the nations is restrained. He's chained and shut in the pit so that he might not deceive the nations anymore. Well, that raises the question, did Satan have the power to deceive the nations? What does scripture say about that? Well, first of all, remember that in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament period, Israel had a privileged position compared to the nations. Deuteronomy seven said that Israel was a people Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Privileged position. Then Psalm 147 says, He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. And Paul says much the same thing in Romans 3 when he says that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Satan didn't have the power to deceive. God had chosen Israel and made his revelation known to them. But what about the other nations? Well, John refers to Satan as the ruler of this world three times in his gospel. And when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, He says that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And when Paul's explaining his ministry to King Agrippa, he says that God sent him to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So apart from the revelation of God, apart from the good news of the gospel, the nations are under the dominion of Satan. In fact, John tells us that when Jesus came to earth, his purpose in coming was to rescue people from Satan's power. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So another way of framing The central purpose of Jesus in coming, the message of the gospel, is the rescue of people from the dominion of Satan and bringing them safely into the dominion of Christ. And we see this conflict between Satan and Christ throughout Jesus' ministry on earth. It's the conflict that scripture has been illustrating all the way since Genesis 3. Remember, God cursed the serpent in the garden, And he said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that conflict that God promised comes to a head in the ministry of Jesus, right from the very beginning of his ministry. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. I want to take you on a quick tour of the ministry of Jesus as told by the gospel writers. We could do this in the book of Matthew, we could do it in Mark. I've just chosen to do it this morning in the book of Luke. But we'll look at Luke, and I want you to see the conflict between Jesus and Satan and his demons. Whose kingdom will win? and we'll make some observations along the way. I want you to be thinking about what we see in Revelation 20, the binding of Satan. I want to ask the question, when does that happen? What is it speaking of? All right, so Luke chapter 4. This passage is The the verses we're going to read, verses five through eight, are part of the temptation of Christ by Satan. So this is at the very beginning of his ministry. Satan wants to derail him from the mission that God has given him. And beginning in verse five, this is the second temptation that Satan brings. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Satan offers the kingdoms of the world. And this is why Jesus came. The kingdoms of the world will belong to him. Remember what we've seen in Psalm 2, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus came to earth, and as his ministry begins, both John the Baptist and Jesus are saying the kingdom is at hand. Jesus is announcing the good news of the kingdom. So Satan's offer makes sense. He's offering the very thing that Jesus came for. But if Jesus were to take Satan's offer then he would not be achieving the kingdom God's way. He would be bypassing the cross. He would be gaining the kingdom, but not the people that he came for. And notice too, Jesus doesn't contradict Satan's claim. Satan says that the kingdoms of the world, their authority and glory have been given to him, to Satan. Jesus doesn't contradict that. Satan had dominion over the nations, not over Israel, but over the rest of the nations until Jesus came announcing the arrival of his kingdom. Look down now at verse 13. Verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. That tells you the conflict is not over at this point. Satan is going to continue this battle. Now look down at verse 34. Verse 34. Starting in verse 31, we have the story of Jesus healing a man with a demon. And look at verse 34. When the man with a demon encounters Jesus, the demon cries out, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So do you see? The demons know why Jesus has come. Have you come to destroy us? This is a spiritual battle, and Jesus' kingdom will defeat Satan's kingdom. Look down at verse 41. Verse 41. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. The demons know who he is, and he has power over them. Jump over now to chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Here Jesus encounters another man with demons. And look what he says. In verse 28, Luke chapter 8, verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Why is he worried about torment? Well, this is the demon speaking through the man and he knows that Jesus has come to defeat them. Pick it up then in verse 29. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. See, Jesus is setting captives free. He's taking Satan's dominion away from him. And the demons beg him not to command them to depart to the abyss. What is the abyss? It's the bottomless pit of Revelation 20. They know that's where they are ultimately going to go, but not quite yet. Now we come to two very important passages. Turn with me to Luke 10. We're going to start in verse 17. Luke 10. In this chapter, Jesus sends out disciples as missionaries. And in verse 17, they come back to report to Jesus. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So the disciples find that they have authority over the demons when they speak in Jesus' name. Jesus' name signifies his power and authority, and Jesus has delegated that authority to them. But also note what Jesus says, by way of explanation, in verse 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What is Jesus saying? He has seen Satan falling from power. Satan's dominion is fallen. We see this in Revelation 9, where John says that he saw the star fallen from heaven to earth. But the point to note is that Jesus is telling them that in his ministry, Satan's power has been broken, Satan is fallen. Now look at the next chapter, chapter 11, verses 20 to 22. Here, Jesus is casting out a demon and some of the people accuse Jesus of working for Satan. I mean, after all, if you tell the demons what to do and they obey you, then you must be in league with Satan. Listen to what Jesus says in response, starting in verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Now this is really important to get. Let's notice a couple of things. First, Jesus says, if he's casting out demons, then the kingdom of God has arrived. So when did the kingdom begin? In the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is casting out demons. And that's a sign that the kingdom has arrived. Jesus is raiding the dominion of Satan. He's taking Satan's possessions. And second, Jesus tells them exactly what he's doing to Satan. He says, if a strong man is guarding his palace, then his belongings are safe. In other words, as long as Satan is able to guard his belongings, the men that his demons have possessed, then his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger than the strong man comes along and defeats him, Then the strong man's possessions are taken by the stronger man. And of course, Satan is the strong man. Jesus is the stronger man. Jesus has defeated Satan and he is now taking Satan's possessions. If we were to turn to Matthew's version of this story, it becomes even clearer. Here's what Matthew, how he tells this story in Matthew's version, Jesus says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. How is it that Jesus is able to plunder Satan's possessions? Because the strong man has been bound. That language is identical to what we're seeing in Revelation 20 where Jesus seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. When was Satan bound? In the ministry of Jesus. So when we come to Revelation 20, and we see Satan bound, we're seeing something that happened in the ministry of jesus and since in revelation 20 we learn that the thousand years follows on immediately from the binding of satan we know now when the thousand years began in the ministry of jesus the millennium began in the ministry of jesus now the way that scripture reckons events we need to remember that sometimes Something is spoken of as an event, as if it happens at a particular point in time, but in reality, it takes a little time to unfold. This description is true about the beginning of the kingdom. Okay? It's not necessarily just a single moment in time. For example, think with me for a minute about the ascension of Jesus. Okay? The ascension of Jesus. What's the significance of the ascension? Well, Jesus is ascending to God the Father and he's taking his place on the throne. It's the official beginning of his kingdom. It's his coronation. He takes the throne. And when the Bible talks about the ascension, it's not just the fact of Jesus ascending, but also what that accomplished. What are the results or the effects of the Ascension. That's all part of what the Bible means when it talks about the Ascension. So what happens at Jesus' Ascension? What are the effects or the results? Let me just give you two things. First, the Spirit is poured out on Christ's people. This is what enables the new covenant promises to be fulfilled. It's the beginning of the new covenant. That's why Peter tells the people at Pentecost, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, the Spirit being poured out as the new covenant begins. And by the way, do you remember how the nations came to be in the first place? At the Tower of Babel, God confused the languages of the people so that they spread over all the earth and they formed the various nations. And when the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, what happens? Babel begins to get rolled back. It begins to get undone. The disciples are proclaiming the kingdom of Jesus and there are people from every nation there. And the Bible says, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. That's the opposite of what happens at Babel where the nations were formed. Now that Satan has been bound and the gospel is going to go to all the nations, the confusion of Babel begins to be undone. And in Revelation, as God gathers his people, it's people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Second, the other thing that happens in the ascension, the other effect is the judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. Remember, Jesus told the people that this was going to be the sign that he was in heaven on his throne. When you see the judgment of Jerusalem, you'll know that I have ascended to my throne and my kingdom has arrived because I'm pouring out this judgment. So the arrival of Jesus' kingdom is announced at the beginning of his ministry. He defeats Satan initially in the temptation that Satan brings. So the strong man has been defeated and we see demons being cast out as Jesus reclaims the dominion of Satan. Then the legal defeat of Satan happens in Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. It's officially accomplished. That's why John, when he recounts Jesus heading to the cross, tells us that Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. In Jesus' death and resurrection, Satan is officially defeated. Then the, then the ascension is the aftermath of that victory. Jesus ascends to take his throne as the victorious king and the spirit is poured out as the new covenant era begins. And within a generation, 40 years, AD 70, the last remnants of the old covenant fade away as the final judgment of Jerusalem falls for her rejection of Christ as Messiah. So from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, to the judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70, that time period is the arrival of Jesus' kingdom. It it begins with that initial victory over Satan. There's the legal victory at the cross. There's the formal coronation and then the final doing away with the old covenant. All of that is the arrival of Jesus' kingdom. It's the beginning of the millennium the thousand year reign of Christ. And that reign is continuing today as Jesus' kingdom continues to grow. Now, before we talk about the growth of that kingdom, let's make sure we're clear about the binding of Satan. In the text, we see that the angel, Jesus, binds Satan with a great chain and throws him in a pit. Now, what does that mean? Well, things that are chained up are still there. They're still active. They're just limited. If a ferocious dog is on a chain, he's still ferocious. He's still dangerous. But the scope of what he can do is limited. He can only go so far as the chain allows. In the story, Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is on his journey. He's about to arrive at House Beautiful, the place where he was hoping to find lodging for the night. And Christian had been warned by two other travelers named Mistrust and Timorous about lions that were up ahead and had caused them to turn back. And here's what Bunyan writes telling the story. So I saw in my dream that he quickly walked forward hoping he might find lodging. But before he had gone far, He entered into a very narrow passage, which was about a furlong off the porter's lodge. Looking very carefully ahead, as he went, he spied two lions in the way. Now, he thought, I see the dangers that drove Mistrust and Timorous back. The lions were chained, but he did not see the chains. Then he was afraid and thought about going back, seeing nothing but death ahead of him. Just then the porter at the lodge, whose name is Watchful, seeing that Christian had stopped his progress as if he would go back, cried out to him asking, is your strength so small? Don't fear the lions, for they are chained and are placed there to test your faith and to discover those who have none. Keep in the middle of the path and no harm shall come to you. Then I saw that Christian went forward, trembling for fear of the lions, but carefully following the directions of the porter. He heard them roar, but they did him no harm. So once Christians saw that the lions were chained, it made all the difference. Yes, he was still afraid, but he had a reasonable expectation of success knowing that the lions were limited in what they could do. They could only go as far as the chain allowed. So here in Revelation 20, what does it mean that Satan is on a great chain? Well, the text tells us exactly what that means. Jesus bound Satan, verse 3 tells us, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So there's a restriction on what Satan can do. He can't deceive the nations anymore. Remember, we said, all the nations used to be under the dominion of Satan, all except Israel, but now that dominion has been broken. They're no longer given over to his power to deceive. So if the nations are no longer under Satan's power and dominion, what is happening today? Is the gospel advancing in our world? Is the kingdom of Christ growing? Well, there's a couple of ways to look at that. For starters, remember that when Jesus ascended into heaven at the beginning of the book of Acts, there were 120 disciples. A little more than double what we have in this room. How many followers of Jesus are there now in our world? You see, it's really easy for us to get discouraged. Because in our little corner of the world, we just see things getting worse. The culture is going downhill. The church is shrinking. Much of the church doesn't even hold to the truth of the Bible anymore. But if you zoom out and get the big picture, things look different. And you can do that two ways. You can zoom out worldwide and you'll see that Christianity is growing in many places in the world. Or you can zoom out historically and look back over time And you'll see that Christianity has grown greatly since the time of Christ. I want you to think about that with me for a couple of minutes, starting with just what we see in the pages of Scripture. And this deserves a lot more time and attention, but we've talked about some of this before, so I'll try to keep it concise. Remember when we studied Matthew 24 together? One of the things that Jesus said was this, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, that's what Jesus has been announcing. His kingdom has arrived. His dominion is conquering Satan's dominion. And the good news of this will be proclaimed, Jesus says, throughout the whole world, and then the end will come. And what is the end in that passage? What is he referring to? He's talking about the end of the old covenant. The end of the Jewish nation. The judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. And the whole temple system being destroyed forever. It's God's judgment on Israel for rejecting Jesus. So how is it then that Jesus can say that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world before that judgment falls in A.D. 70? Because we look around and we say, it doesn't even seem to have happened yet. We have to define our terms. We have to use them the way the Bible does. So let's get the terms straight. First of all, what does Jesus mean by world? The word for world that Jesus uses here is the word oikumene. It's the word we get economy from. It has to do with a system. So, for example... When Luke tells us that a decree went out, in the Christmas story, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, what is he talking about? The whole planet? No, he's talking about the Roman Empire. The known world, the inhabited world, the world system that they live in. Rome wasn't taxing people in Venezuela, or Canada, or Australia. The world was the Roman Empire. Or in Acts 11, when it's prophesied that there will be a great famine over all the world, where was the famine? It was in the Roman Empire. It wasn't in Argentina or Oregon. How about the word nations? It's the word ethnos. It has to do with ethnicity or people groups. So Jesus isn't saying that the gospel of the kingdom will literally cross every physical national border before the end of the old covenant era in AD 70. He's saying the gospel of the kingdom will go out to people of every ethnicity, all the nations of the world, no longer will it be focused just on Israel, but now on all people. So the question is, did that happen before AD 70? Well, what's our authority? We're not going to turn to history books to find that. We need to say, what does scripture say? Does God's word answer that question? Well, about 30 years after Jesus' ascension, Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he says this. He says, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So Paul says, my... My mission that I've been given is to go to all the nations. And then he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So already at that point, Paul could say that the faith of the church in Rome was being proclaimed in all the world. Then as he finishes the letter to Romans, he says this. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations, past tense, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. By the time Paul writes to the Romans, he is able to say that that has already happened. Or when he writes to the Colossians, he refers to the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. And later in the same chapter, the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. In other words, what Jesus said would happen did happen. The gospel went throughout the whole Roman Empire, the whole world. As the book of Acts comes to a close, and by the way, think about the book of Acts. What's the program that is set out for the book of Acts? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what happens in the book of Acts? It starts in Jerusalem The disciples go to Judea, they go to Samaria, and by the end of the book of Acts, you have Paul having gone through the known world, and he's now in Rome all the way at the very heart of the empire, okay? And as the book of Acts comes to a close, Paul's in prison in Rome, but he says that there are members of Caesar's own household that are part of the church. They've become Christians. And the point for Revelation 20 is this. Satan has been bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations and since that has happened even in the first decades of the church we see the gospel going to the nations and bearing much fruit. Think of it this way in the first several thousand years of world history up until the time of Christ how many nations served and obeyed God? One, Israel. And yes, they're a little questionable at times, but you could generally say they served and obeyed God. All the rest of the nations did not because they were under the dominion of Satan. How about after the time of Christ? Well, by 301 AD, we have King Tiridates III of Armenia declaring that his country will officially be a Christian nation And not too many years after that, Constantine leads the Roman Empire to now become Christian. Does that mean that every person was a Christian? No, of course not. But Christianity became dominant. It shaped the culture and the laws and the government. And the same thing can be said about most of the European nations. In the 9th century, King Alfred the Great created a law code for Anglo-Saxon England that was based on the laws of the Bible. And it's shaped British law even through the modern age. That's just one example. It's been true of South America after the European explorers arrived. Christianity is growing in many of the African nations today. Our own country was very much shaped in its origins by Christianity. Does that mean that all of our founding fathers were Christians? No, of course not. But many were, and the culture was shaped by Christianity. Now, how is all of that possible? Because Satan has been chained. Because Satan can no longer deceive the nations and prevent them from worshiping God. And the kingdom of God will continue to grow in our world until, as Habakkuk says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will come a day when the nations will be discipled. Why? Because Satan has been bound. He can no longer deceive the nations. So the main thing that I want to grab out of Revelation 20 for us this morning is this. Jesus' gospel of the kingdom now successfully advances throughout the world because Satan has been bound and can no longer deceive the nations. Let me say that again. Jesus' gospel of the kingdom now successfully advances throughout the world because Satan has been bound and can no longer deceive the nations. Now, how does that help you and me? What difference does that make to us? Let me just boil it down to two things this morning. First, mission. Okay, mission. Mission. As Jesus commissions his disciples, what does he say to them? After the cross, after the resurrection, after he's completed his mission, he's accomplished God's plan in God's way, not in the way that Satan tempted him to do it. He says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus says he has all authority, not just in heaven, but all authority on earth. He has dominion. Satan doesn't have it anymore. Jesus has taken it away. The strong man has been bound by the stronger man. And since Jesus has the authority, now the nations can be reached. So we go in his name and authority, starting with our own nation. You and I have a mission. We've been commissioned by Jesus to take the good news of his kingdom to the nations. And you can do that right here at home through the conversations that you have with your coworkers and your neighbors and your friends and your relatives. You can do it by ministering and sh- showing love to others in the name of Jesus. You can do it by living godly lives in your families, raising your children to know and love Christ. You can do it by advancing Christian culture. You can do it by using whatever God has given you in the place that he's put you with the task he has given you to honor him. And the second thing beyond mission this morning is this, encouragement. As you look around at the culture around you, it can be depressing. Our nation is not heading in the right direction. Our society is collapsing in terms of its morals and ethics. And along with that comes economic and cultural collapse. Christians are not held in high esteem. Persecution is likely on the horizon. But if you remember what the Bible teaches us, if you zoom out and look at the big picture, worldwide and historically, you'll realize that Jesus' kingdom is advancing. Sure, there are ups and downs. Yes, if America does not repent, it will likely collapse. But the kingdom of God will not the kingdom of God will grow, it will succeed. Like a mustard seed that grows into a great plant. Like a little bit of yeast that's in a lump of dough that spreads through the whole thing. Like the stone in Daniel's vision that became a mountain that filled the whole earth. The kingdom of Christ will succeed. He will win because Satan has been defeated and bound. So be encouraged. Is it possible that you might suffer for your faith? Sure, but why would you expect any different? Jesus suffered and we follow in his footsteps. Is it possible that you might die for your faith? Sure, but remember the honor that the martyrs receive in Revelation. Jesus sees it. He knows. And for every Christian who dies, what does the future hold? Resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's long explanation of the nature of the resurrection, the future hope that we have as Christians, no matter what we face in this life. And in fact, in that chapter, Paul speaks of the reign of Christ. And here's what he says. He must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So notice the reign of Christ is characterized by him putting enemies under his feet. The reign is not characterized, at least initially, by all the enemies already being under his feet. It's a process and he's reigning while he does that. And it's going to progressively happen until the final enemy is defeated and the final enemy is death. The forces of the world are being defeated as the gospel conquers the nations and as more and more people submit to him. The last and final enemy that is defeated is death itself. Then the kingdom comes to an end and he hands it over to God the Father, having brought all things into alignment to himself and under submission to himself. Now, when will the last enemy be defeated? When will death be beaten? in the resurrection. All of Christ's people that death has claimed will be raised to life and death will be defeated. And as he draws the chapter to a close, here's how Paul finishes. And this is the encouragement that I want you to walk away with this morning. As you think about this truth that Satan is bound and we are called to proclaim the gospel. Last two verses, 1 Corinthians 15, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. Because Satan is bound. The nations will be discipled. Jesus wins. So be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the victory that you have gained. It's a victory that no one else could have gained. We thank you that you've defeated Satan, that he is bound, that he is restrained and limited, And we recognize that means we have the freedom to accomplish the task you've given us. To disciple the nations. To announce the kingdom of Christ. So I pray that you'd help each one of us to see how you've called us to do that in the place that you've put us. In our families. At work. In our neighborhoods. Amongst our friends. In our families. May we be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know our work is not in vain, because you've defeated Satan. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.